Turn with me first to John chapter 10, then Romans chapter 8, and finally Hebrews chapter 6. really a joy with us to have our friends uh, Donald and Krishana here with us and get to spend a few days with them uh, in our territory. Uh, they've really been a tremendous blessing to us and uh, Donald's been such a great encouragement and such a great example of a godly elder. I'm embarrassing the life out of him right now. Uh, and, uh, but, but the two of them are just such an amazing couple in the Lord and so humble uh, and it's just a, really a joy. So I really hope you get a chance to meet them. Uh, because uh, they've been such a great influence for me, and I really appreciate that. Um, anyway, let's pick up with what Jesus says here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then over to Romans. Romans the 8th chapter. Great passage here starting with verse 26. Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes, uh, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of, the God, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great passage. And finally, to Hebrews chapter 6. I'll begin there with verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May God bless to us and bless this reading, this reading from his holy word. Well, today I'm going to be bold. Is that okay? Do you, you realize, that, I think that's a contradiction of terms to say, I'm going to be bold and then ask you if it's okay if I'm bold. <laughs> I just realized that. So I'm just going to be bold. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to tell you that I am going to resolve once and for all one of the greatest battles in historic Christianity. The sides of this battle have, have come up against one another, slugging it out generation after generation, year after year. Some people have cursed other people. Now, these are Christians, mind you, not non-Christians. Some of these Christians have cursed the other Christians and have thrown them to the ground and wanted to trample on them, called them heretics and fools and and in grievous error. And, And this has gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, generation after generation, year after year, century after century. And today, once and for all, we're going to announce this battle and we're going to declare the victor of the battle. And of course, you know the great battle The great battle is once saved, always saved. Let's give a cheer for that. Yay! Versus you can lose your salvation. Let's give a cheer for that. Yay! So here it is. There's once saved, always saved in one side. You can lose your salvation on the other side. They're duking it out back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And now we're going to declare the victor. They're both wrong. 
How about that? Neither of them win because both of those positions are errors historically. Once saved, always saved. You can lose your salvation. Actually, both of those positions are an error because rightly understood, the Bible doesn't support either one. Rightly understood, there's another way to see what God is saying that interestingly is consistent with what we've been talking about the last couple of months. We've been looking at union with Christ, remember? And we've been saying that when we are saved by grace through faith, what happens is that Christ comes into us and we go into Christ. Christ in us, we in Christ, in the same way that Jesus says, He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. That is the same kind of union that we have with Jesus Christ. And salvation is not about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is not about getting eternal life. Salvation is not about getting your fire insurance. Salvation is about this union with Christ Jesus that we come into, and when we come into union with Christ Jesus, we are saved. We enter this union by grace through faith. So when we come into this, we are saved. When we come into this, we are justified. When we come into this union with Christ, we are sanctified because of this union. When we come into this union with Christ, we are adopted as sons of God. All of these benefits, in fact, all of the benefits of Christ come in union with Christ. This is the real heart of salvation. It's not some event that happened 2,000 years ago that we happen to believe that makes us saved. We are saved by grace through faith, being united with the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, a reality that is present in our lives right now and moves into the future. And in union with Christ, it was us hanging on the cross and it was us rising from the tomb. This all happens through union with Jesus Christ. And so what does Jesus do when we come into union with him? Jesus works to preserve that union with him so that it continues to have a present ongoing reality in our lives, allowing us to persevere until the day that Jesus comes again and we experience the fullness of that union with Jesus. You see, the problem with once saved, always saved, or this idea of eternal security from a biblical standpoint is that the once saved, always saved camp, and by the way, I used to stand in that camp when I didn't understand fully what it meant. The once saved, always saved camp will say some version of the following, that once you're saved, once you get your get out of hell free card from Jesus, you can never lose it, and so then it doesn't matter how you live from that point on. But if you're really in union with Christ Jesus, you cannot help 
but become sanctified. If you're really in union with Christ Jesus, you cannot prevent being adopted as a son. Now, in the same way that once I'm in union with my wife, and she's really my wife, I can't prevent the fact that we now have to live together. And that as I live with my wife, she is going to influence who I am. I'm a better man today because of my wife than I was 33 years ago. And that's true because we're in union with one another. So eternal security, the idea that we're saved and now we can go and do whatever, whatever we want to do is completely unbiblical. And it doesn't, you know, the, the scriptures does, do not account for that. In fact, the scriptures continually warn us against that. The implication is that if you feel like you can live just any way you want to, then you're not really in union with Christ. Just like if I felt I could go and sleep with whatever woman that I wanted to sleep, I'm not really married to my wife. But the lose your salvation camp has also been an error. Because the lose your salvation camp, again, it tells you you got your get out of hell free card and you forgot what wallet you put it in. Or you left it on the bus. Or you lost it on the tube. And somehow you wake up one day and you stand before God and God says, where's your get out of hell free card? And you say, well, I had it here somewhere. I guess I must have lost it. I'm really sorry, can I get in anyway? But if you really understand that our salvation comes through union with Christ, if God compared our salvation, our union with Jesus to that of marriage, and if God said, what God has joined together, let no human being separate in terms of earthly marriage, would God possibly allow us who have been united with Christ to be ununited with Christ? This would mean two things. If we were saved and then suddenly, oops, I lost it somewhere. If that happened, it would mean that Jesus failed. Because Jesus said clearly in the passage, I will not let anyone snatch them out of my hand. That means Jesus would have failed to do the will of God. It means that God would have failed to keep his promise if we could not be saved all of a sudden. So you can lose your salvation is every bit as in error as the idea that you got this eternal security that it doesn't matter what you do, how you live, you just live the way you want to and you can count on the fact that you have this. No, union with Christ means something more. Union with Christ means that the Jesus that has called us to himself, the Father that has united us with his Son, the Father that has brought us into his family, that God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, they are capable of keeping us until the end. And that they will do that. I think one of the greatest expressions of this, and of all the creeds and confessions of Christendom, this paragraph is my favorite. And it comes, as all Dutch people will appreciate, from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I just want to read it to you because it, it's such 
an amazing thing. Now, a catechism is a series of questions and answers. You ask a question and then you answer the question. And this is question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is thy only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. I love that bit. All the power of the devil. And, here's the key, so preserves me, or in some translations, so protects me, but so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Must work together. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's a great statement. I'd encourage you to look the Heidelberg Catechism up online. You can download copies from a lot of places. It's absolutely wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So, if we can't say, once saved, always saved, and if we can't say, I can lose my salvation, then what do we say as Christians? We say that as Christians, we are preserved in Christ. Sounds a little bit like a jam, you know, a fruit on the, on the but it's not. As Christians, we are preserved in Christ. See, the problem with talking about you can lose your salvation, as well as talking about once saved, always saved, one of the biggest issues with both of these approaches is they locate the responsibility in the person, not in Jesus. So if you say, I'm eternally secure, that means, okay, I don't really have the responsibility to live my life uh, so I can do whatever I want, but it's all up to me. And if you say, well, I can lose my salvation, Again, you're responsible for losing your salvation, like you misplaced it somewhere. But there is nothing in the scriptures that ever puts the locus of all of this, our salvation, on us. Jesus tells us that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. Paul tells us we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, and even faith is a gift from God, so no one can boast. The scriptures are clear that it is God's say, grace that saves us. And so once we are in Christ, once we are united with Jesus Christ, Jesus holds on to us. Jesus holds on to us. And nothing can pry us out of the hands of God. If you say that your sin can pry you out of the hands of God, then you're making your sin greater than God. 
If you say Satan or the circumstances of life can pry your hands, can pry you out of the hands of God, out of Jesus who holds you and saves you, who's united himself with you so that you are in him and he is in you, the mystery of our salvation. If you say that anything can separate you from the love of God, that thing becomes God, becomes more powerful than God, and nothing is more powerful than God. So Jesus preserves us. Jesus holds on to us. And Jesus, the sovereign God of the universe, holds on to us by grace. It's all about grace. Your whole life in God is about grace. Every single thing about us is about grace. So God is preserving us. God is holding on to us. So we talk about the preservation of the saints. Jesus preserves us. Jesus holds on to us. Once you are in Christ, Jesus never, ever, ever lets you go. And that is our reality. Once you're in Christ. Once you're in Christ. And because we have the preservation of the saints in Christ, we can then talk about the perseverance of the saints in Christ. Many times when people use that phrase, perseverance of the saints, what they say is, you got to persevere. You really need to work at it. And if you don't persevere, you lose. You snooze, you lose. But in the same way that Jesus Christ preserves us, Jesus Christ also causes us to persevere. We cannot persevere outside of Christ. I don't have the ability to do that. It's a bit like asking me to run a marathon with Ade. Now, Ade, any day, he could, he could outrun me those 20-some-odd miles it is in a marathon. I don't even know how, how far it is because I only drive that far. I don't walk that far. And, and you know, there's, there's no way. But now, if Ade carried me, then I could probably finish the marathon. He might not, but I definitely would if he carried me the whole way. And that's the truth. Once we're in Jesus, Jesus holds on to us, Jesus preserves us, and Jesus carries us, causing us to persevere. We will keep on keeping on. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes we don't get tired. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't sit down. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't stray away. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't commit sin. We will do all of these things. But if Peter himself could deny Jesus three times at his deepest hour of need and still be reconciled back to Jesus, so to become the rock, advancing the church, advancing the kingdom of God, if that can happen with Peter, it can happen with any of us. And so Jesus is the one who preserves us and Jesus causes us to persevere. And that means that we will keep on keeping on. That means that as we are connected with Jesus, it is impossible for us not to continue to be changed to be more and more and more like Jesus. I guarantee you, if you will continue to walk with Jesus, you'll start looking like Jesus. Not that you'll grow a beard, ladies, don't, so don't worry. But you'll start being the character of Jesus, and you'll do the things that Jesus did. 
And sometimes some of us are slower than others, some of us are faster than others, but the promise is that according to Paul in Romans 8, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it means if you are slow in this, if you are a late bloomer, if you think that the person, the other person running the marathon is miles ahead of you, it doesn't matter. You will get there in union with Jesus. Jesus will not let you go. He will make sure that you continue to progress. And it might be that you progress very little in this life, but boy, as soon as you've seen Jesus, you go all the way. But all of this is the work of Jesus. The perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints happens because we are in union with Jesus Christ and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has enfolded us into, into God's family, so to speak. We are adopted and God doesn't unadopt us. We are sanctified. We are already cleansed and set apart so God's gonna keep doing it. We're justified even as we're being justified. We're saved even as we're being saved. So the person who is saved will always be saved and continue to be saved. Not because we work at it, but because Jesus holds on to us. But the argument comes. Okay, Rod, but what about passages like Hebrews there? Or are you saying that we don't have any responsibilities here? Are you saying then that once we're saved, we just hold on to Jesus, Jesus holds on to us, and everything will just happen, and we don't have responsibility, we don't make effort or anything like that? That is not what the Scripture says. In fact, the Scripture encourages us to live in this reality of preservation and perseverance, the preservation in Christ and the perseverance in Christ. The Scriptures encourage us to live in this reality and work hard to make sure that this reality is manifested in our lives. Because the Bible is reasonably clear, you can never be confident that you're really living for Jesus, that you're really saved, that you're really preserved and, and persevering if it's not demonstrated somehow in your life. And so if you think you can just do whatever you want to do and it doesn't have consequences, you're living very dangerously. So the writer to the Hebrews there in the passage we read really is encouraging us to patiently endure, to patiently keep on. But we need to briefly look at that because this, is, this passage has caused a lot of problems. Because the writer here, he says, look what he says here. He says, it is impossible in the case of those to be restored again to repentance. Who are the ones who cannot be restored again to repentance? It almost sounds like it's Christians, but it's not. Look what he says. Impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. This idea of being enlightened means that you have some understanding about what's going on. There are a lot of people, I've met a lot of people, I've even met some people on the Isle of Lewis as we've walked around there who have been believers in the reality that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the tomb their entire life. 
If you ask them, do they believe all the facts about Jesus? They say, without a doubt, I believe everything about Jesus, but I'm not converted. What is happening here is these people have been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, but they refuse to come into it. It's a, the idea of somebody walking by uh, maybe a pizza joint and they're really hungry and they see the lights on and, and they smell the smell of pizza and they say, wow, that looks like really great pizza and I'm really, really hungry here. I'm going to stand here and just kind of take in the smell and all of that, but I'm not going to go in and eat it. That person is no more saved than the person who fails to go in is hungry, is, is no longer hungry. So it's a person who's been enlightened. What else has happened to the person? They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now what happens when you taste something? You take a little bit, you might swallow it, you might not swallow it. If you go wine tasting, what do you do? You take a little bit of wine, you swizzle around in your mouth, spit it out, and then try something else. You don't swallow it. And so there are a lot of people who have tasted the heavenly gift. And what is the heavenly gift? The heavenly gift is grace. There are a lot of people who have come into contact with the grace of God. They've tasted the grace of God, but they refuse to eat deeply. They refuse to drink deeply. Those people are not saved. It's impossible for people who have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the most difficult of all, the, all of the ones because this idea of partaking the Holy Spirit literally means they have the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the touch of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Same word is used in other contexts for people who have a demon. Oh, but the idea is I have seen people who are not Christians have gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you want a biblical example of this, look at Saul. I don't think that we can argue that Saul was saved, but Saul prophesied in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was not regenerate, even though he experienced the reality of the Spirit of God on his life. He should have taken that experience of prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, he should have taken that to heart to know that he couldn't tell God no when God told him what to do. But he didn't, and consequently he was lost. So people can experience the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives and still not follow Jesus, still not turn to him. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. I know a lot of people who say the Bible is a great book and they love to read the Bible, but they're no more believers uh, in the Bible uh, than, uh, yeah, they're no more believers in the Bible than anything. And so they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and they've tasted the powers of the age to come. What's this? These are things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the reality of God's power. They've experienced the reality of God's joy. They've experienced some of the reality of who God is, but they've only tasted it. They refuse to go into it. My friend in, uh, in Varen, uh, they have seen a number of dramatic healings. People healed from extraordinary illnesses instantly or almost immediately, and yet these people are refusing to follow Jesus even though Jesus has healed their bodies. This is somebody who has tasted the powers of the age to come. And these are the people who will not repent again. 
And there are millions of people, there are even millions of people around the world in churches that are going to church week in and week out who have tasted this, who have played around with it, but they've not really surrendered themselves to Jesus and they've not really come into union with Christ Jesus. And those people eventually will fall away. In fact, Jesus prophesied that the day will come when there will be a mass falling away in the church. And let me tell you, there are pastors and church leaders and elders in churches all around the world that are tasters of the kingdom of God. They're not consumers of the kingdom of God. There are people who want to taste the reality of Jesus and grace, but they don't want to consume it because they know once you consume it, it changes your life. You're no longer in control. And those people will be part of this great falling away. They look like Christians, they seem to act like Christians, but they're really not moving forward at all as Christians. And those people must not deceive themselves in thinking, oh, well, I've had a lot of good experiences and I'm doing a lot of good work, so I must be saved. Because it's not about your experience, it's not about your works, it's about your union with Christ Jesus, which comes to you by grace through faith. So what do we do? Well, you might think that the writer to the Hebrews is pretty bleak at this stage, but he's not, because most people, they stop reading. Though we speak in this way, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, I'm telling you about this, but I really do believe that you're saved. I'm telling you about this, but I know that you have not only tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you have gone fully into his kingdom. I know that you have not only partaken of the Holy Spirit, but that you will allow the Holy Spirit to take you and enfold you into the reality of Jesus Christ and the Father's love. I know that God has united you with Christ and Christ is holding on to you just as you are holding on to Jesus. I am confident that this is your reality. And in the same way, I am confident that this is the reality of almost everybody here, if not everybody here. That Jesus really has united himself with you and you are united with Christ. And so the writer says, we're confident that this is your reality. And because of this, we're encouraging you to respond to it because you can. Because our response, if we're in union with Christ, our response is empowered by Jesus. Our response is not separate from Jesus. Just like Paul says in Philippians, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the same idea. You think, well, if I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, maybe it means I'm not saved. Maybe it means I'm one of these people. But Paul goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good purpose. So we press in, we continue on, we respond to the reality that we are preserved in Christ and we are persevering in Christ in this way. And so he tells us, he says, for God is not unjust to overlook your work, uh, uh, and the love that you have shown for, all the, for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you, here you go, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of faith, of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit 
the promises. So what does he tell us to do? He says, first of all, if this is your reality, if you're preserved in Christ and persevering in Christ, then you need to be patiently enduring by showing the earnestness of your desire to have a full assurance of hope. I am confident that I'm saved. I know that if I died this very minute, I'd see the face of Jesus and I'd spend eternity in his kingdom. I am confident of this reality. But you know what? Because I'm confident, I don't want to quit. I want to keep going. I don't want to be that guy who is confident today and then tomorrow is living in sin and has offended the kingdom of God and offended the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do I do? I am earnest to keep going to show that, yeah, I really do have hope because I'm obeying. And then he says, in our response to this, do not be sluggish. In other words, don't be undisciplined. I know a lot of Christians who just are undisciplined. They lead lazy lives. If you're a Christian, you should be constantly seeking to do good to others. That's a natural outflow of your life. We are here to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we cannot be sluggish and we cannot be lazy. Every Sunday, I would rather sleep in than come to church. There is almost no Sunday in the last probably five or six years that I wouldn't have rather slept in. One of the things I love about going to the Isle of Lewis is that their church starts at 12 o'clock, so I can sleep in and still go to church. It's just they have an evening service too that I need to go to. But I can still do that. So we must not be lazy and we must not be undisciplined. And you need to take a look at your life, not the life of the person around you, and say, am I disciplining myself? Am I reading the word? Am I praying? Am I associating with the saints? Am I doing ministry? Am I doing good to other people? And am I working hard at it or am I being lazy? Not because you have to prove that you're going to heaven, but because if you're preserved in Christ and persevering in Christ, you're going to want to do something about it. And if you don't want to do something about it, then you need to question whether you're per preserved and persevering in Christ Jesus. You need to question whether or not you ever were saved. And if you have a question, you need to go right now before the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me, and I surrender myself to you. Save me and unite me with your son Jesus. And... He said, we also have to be imitators of those who have faith and patient endurance to inherit the promises. In other words, as we're doing all of this, we have to live our lives by faith that our lives matter and we need to keep on keeping on realizing that nothing comes quickly. Many times we think, okay, I'm going to deal with this issue in my life overnight. I've talked to people who have been struggling with the similar sins maybe for five years, six years, seven years, and they think, I'm a failure because I'm still struggling. And I say, no, you're not because you're still struggling. You haven't given in. You're not a failure. Keep going. Persevere. You'll get free. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is God's promise for us. And so we must show our earnestness we must not be lazy or undisciplined, and we must show faith and patient endurance until that time that we're conformed to the image of God's Son. And the promise is that Jesus is holding on to you, and he will not let you go if you're a Christian. 
He will preserve you until that day he comes again, or until the day of your death, whichever comes first. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will persevere in this. You cannot help but do it because Jesus is doing it. You're not. And if you're preserved and and persevering in Christ, then show the world that it's true. Show the world in your earnestness. Show the world in your discipline. Show the world in your faith and your endurance that Jesus is really alive in me. And I might be down, I might be knocked down, I might fall, I might trip up at any given moment, but Jesus will pick me up. And there is no one who can condemn me because Jesus has justified me. And there is no one who can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. And there is no circumstance in my life that can come against me that God can't use to work for my good because I'm loved by God and I'm called according to his purpose. And we go forth in that faith, we go forth in that reality, because that is God's reality in us. So it's not about being once saved, always saved. And it's certainly not about losing your salvation. It's about Jesus who redeemed you, Jesus who saved you, Jesus who sanctified you, the Father who adopted you, the Spirit of God who filled you, Jesus who united you with him in his death and resurrection, this Jesus will never let you go. Live your life faithfully and confidently in this reality. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. I pray, Lord God, that you would just speak the truth of it into our hearts and our minds, that we might embrace it fully as the people you have made us to be. We love you, we exalt you, we worship you, and we adore you. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.